Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. After a degree in economics, Gordon Newton-Johnson decided he didn't want to go to work in a suit and tie. Instead, he joined a new wine business that his father Dave had set up in the cool climate Hemelinada Valley. Over the last 25 years, he's helped to turn Newton-Johnson vineyards into a South African first growth, making some of the country's best Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs, while remaining one of the wine industry's true gentlemen. Hey, Gordy, how are you? Hi, Tim. All good, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard and fast start to the winter. Uh, we're in, uh, in May, which in the past has actually been, you know, usually get some nice kind of uh, Indian summer days in May, and, and it's bloody cold at the moment. So it's actually been a, a great start to the winter. Don't tell me that because I arrive in South Africa this weekend. Yes. <laughs> I know. We've had buckets of rain. The rain hasn't stopped since the harvest. Oh, man. And where are you right now? You're at the winery in the upper Himalanada Valley, yeah? I'm in the upper Himalanada. I'm in the winery in my office. It's nice and quiet. There's no kids to to pull pranks on me, so all good. <laughs> the Hemelada Valley but let's start with where you were born because you weren't born in the Cape you were born in Durban which is it's too humid to grow grapes there isn't it yeah I mean Durban is kind of semi-tropical um I kind of remember as a kid as well is that I mean you just throw an avo pip or banana pips or you know we had avos and mangoes and papayas growing in the garden so it's definitely not for for wine uh, there's a bit of wine. There's there's a bit of uh, vineyard up in the Midlands, which is a little bit high altitude, but uh, it's also a summer rainfall region, so not ideal. And, uh, and you moved to the Cape when you were what, six years old? Six, yeah, just as yeah. I was starting school. And do you remember the move from from Durban to the Cape? I did because it's um, it was quite a change. Uh, obviously, growing up in in KZN, they, they call it the last British outpost. So there's there's not many Afrikaners there, uh, except for one good friend of mine, Hannah Storm. He's he's a, a rare Afrikaans Italian. Um, and um, yeah, so going to the Cape, I was kind of confronted with Afrikaans for the first time. Um, when I was young in, in Natal, we were playing more more soccer than anything else. And then all of a sudden, you know, he has this big game rugby in our faces. Um, so, yeah, it was very different. I was wearing closed shoes. I used to wear sandals to school. So, yeah, it was all very different. <laughs> I mean, your dad, Dave, is Dave, not David. He developed this interest in wine through, I think, the Durban Wine Society. Then he got a job with Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. I mean, is he pretty much self-taught as well as self-made in wine, Dave? Um, no, he, he did study a little bit for it. Um, uh, I think his, his love for wine started in the early 70s. And he was he and Felicity, my, my mom, were, were tasting around um and he met quite a few of the winemakers back then already um and had started working for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery uh in the early 70s and um 
he said like he, he did a few courses in wine. There wasn't really much around available. Just a couple of the corporates and Gilbys and distillers had a little course that you could do. Hmm. Uh, and even at one point, and I only learned this uh, the other day, is that uh, he was even thinking of going to the UK and maybe carrying on his studies there, and you know, with the MW studies. And that's when Dave Hughes got hold of him and said, listen, we're, we're starting this Cape Wine Academy and we're going to start this new qualification, the, the Cape Winemakers, oh, well, not sorry, not Cape Winemakers Guild, the Cape Wine Master. Uh, and he opted for that. And uh, so he was originally based in Cape Town. Mm. My mom is from Ladysmith in Natal, so he met her and mm. they'd moved out there uh, with Bevan. Bevan had been born and, and I was born in Natal. empire really <laughs> yeah, i mean it kind of kind of grew on him um because the reason for us moving over to the cape was he was transferred by sfw so he went to go work in stellenbosch uh and then really it just started to grow and you know i think he got he got quite tired of the the corporate life and uh went off on his own and um he eventually started his little, his own little negotiant wine brand, and also helped uh, a lot of his winemaker friends with their first exports. Guys like Neil Ellis, Jan Boulankutsia, Ram van Feld, and those guys. So you know he's an innovator, but and also a bit of a maverick. Your dad is, and I love your dad. He's great fun. He's always around the winery, even today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. I mean, he's 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 always got a plan going, and. You know, he's, he's, he's the best one-man team. You know, he, he kind of will go off and, and go, go off and do something or, or some idea. I mean, at one stage, he had a, a business making uh, wooden uh, wine boxes, packaging as well, so the smart boxes, because he's, he's still, even today, very much into his woodwork. Um, and then, yeah, the whole, I think what a, what a really great break for him was uh, hosting the first MW trip down to South Africa, which I think was 95 or 96. And he, he got a lot of contacts from, from that visit. Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot of, uh, you know, inside info into the, the British trade. And um, yeah, started his own negotiation wine brand. And it's, you know, our whole story is kind of morphing from, from one, uh, you know, different business to another, negotiant brands and a, hmm. and a later supermarket brand. And then, you know, making small, small bits of Newton Johnson came later. And, you know, here we are today. And, and that's our sole focus. Valley, I think it was 1995. So just after the return of democracy, I just wonder, you know, what attracted them to the region? Because that was quite risky at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, and I think it was a few years after he'd become a Cape Wine master. He wrote his thesis on Pinot Noir. He loved Pinot Noir. Um, and, you know, also back in the day, in the 80s, you could buy Burgundy for relatively cheap. It was affordable. So, you know, they drank loads of Burgundy. Uh, he loved it. And I think he was really interested in um, the start of Pinot in South Africa. You know, it's it kind of had its origins in Stellenbosch with a couple of places, but it was really when Tim Hamilton Russell came down to Himalayanada and really, you know, that, that I think was the real start for, for Pino. So, you know, I, I think at the time he was just wanting to uh, 
get a good place close to the sea. Also, number one important thing, he didn't want to give up his water culture and, um, and, and build a home for his negotiant brand. And then that plants a little bit of vineyard and then, you know, see what happens. I mean, you, meanwhile, had been studying economics at Stellenbosch University, not wine, yeah? So yeah. you hadn't caught the wine bug, but then you decided, didn't you, that you didn't want to wear a suit and tie. And so how did you actually morph back into wine? Had your dad started to do stuff under his own brand by then, not just the Negocion brand, but Newton-Johnson prototype hadn't started, had it really? No, it hadn't started. It hadn't started until I came onto the scene, Um and yeah, it's true. Up to the age of about twenty, I was totally oblivious, as you know, to a possibility of a career in the wine industry. Um, but you know, I had more artistic leanings. I did a business degree, but I, you know, I, I did well in the degree, but I didn't enjoy it very much. Hmm. Um, and in my last year, I was just finishing off a few credits, and and my dad said, "You're not going to sit on your ass. You, you know, go do something." Uh, and that's where. Uh, his good friend, Walter Finlayson, was starting up a new project, uh, was before, was called Slaley, mm-hmm. um, and then got Ben Radford in an Aussie uh, to come in and make the wine. So that was kind of my first introduction, was just spending time in the cellar with Ben. And yeah, it was great fun. No. Burgundies, at least, I hope, no? Yeah, no, I was, was drinking the Burgundies. Whether they were, they were appreciated or not, I don't, I'm not too sure. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I, our youth was kind of spent of with, you know, my dad and his friends and wine soirees and, you know, kids running around and bringing bottles to the table and watching the guys taste. And so we were immersed in that. And, it, you know, I, I re- if I could take something away from uh, being a youngster was just – you know, what a great bunch of people the wine industry was, you know, it was, it was different. It was a different kind of business. And that. Or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think you made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> this, tell us about this place you're in, this region, the Hemelanada Valley. I mean, especially it's now got these three sub different sub regions, it's got Valley, it's got the upper Hemelanada Valley and it's got the Ridge. Um, is it a cool climate? Tell us about the ocean influence, soil types. What makes it special and what makes the bits different? Well, it is one of the, the rare cool climates in South Africa, which tend to be the little places hug. Either you're going for altitude or it's hugging along the coast somewhere because mm. our biggest influence is the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean and the Benguela current that from the Southern Ocean that brings us cold water up to the Cape. Um, so the valley is, is basically perpendicular to the coast. Um, it starts at about two kilometers from, from the ocean and stretches all the way till about nine kilometers. Um, and, you know, the, during the summer, mostly, we've got a lot of southerly winds. During the winter, we've got a lot of westerly winds. But the southerly winds really bring in those cold temperatures off the sea and up the valley. So you often have these kind of tablecloth decked conditions within the valley, overcast, quite cool. Um, so I always talk about over the mountain towards Stellenbosch is that you get this buildup of cloud and, you know, on any given day we can, you know, we can at least be 10 degrees cooler than, say, if you go drive 20 minutes inland. 
Mm. Uh, I, I think that's really important. I think it's probably our biggest attribute is, is being cool enough for Pinot. Um, and then with regards to the appellations, um, when we formed them, originally only wanted one appellation, but uh, the geologists and all the climatologists came back and said, you know, there, there are a couple of marked differences. So at the beginning of the valley, you've got the lowest part, uh, altitude, anywhere between 50 and 100 meters. That's where Hamilton Russell uh, and Bouchard Finison is. Um, where there's, they only on the northern face, uh, so in the southern hemisphere, the warmer slope for us mm. in this hemisphere. And they've got this big bank, this largely homogenous uh, piece of Bockefeld shale, these sedimentary soils, quite heavy in clay, very, very clay rich. So they, they bring out quite structured wines from that end. And then you climb up a little bit into the upper Himalayan Arda, where we are, Restless River, uh, we've got our neighbors, uh, Hasher next door. Um, where the valley is actually bisected by the Onrus River. We've almost got an equal expanse of north-facing and south-facing vineyard. And we've got farms on, on both, and they're, they're quite interesting comparisons between those two. Uh, and then where the upper is quite special as well is the granite soil. Um, if we take the whole area around us of the overbuild, there's just this sea of Bockefeld shale, shale soils. And where you find granites is mostly along the west coast, bits of Stellenbosch, western ends of Stellenbosch up into the Swatland. Mm. And you've got this small little outcrop, you know, over the Cape Fold Mountains our way. Um, so that's what makes uh, Upper Himalayanado mm. uh, quite distinctive. And then going a little bit further up, uh, I mean, our altitudes are anywhere between 200 and 300 meters. And then you climb a little bit more into the Himalayanada Ridge at the furthest end, the most inland end, also the highest altitude. I think they've got vineyards uh, anywhere between 200 and 400 meters. And their landscape is also quite different. They've got all these undulating hills and lots of different little aspects as well. Mm. But then again, you, you get more into the structured wines as well from the clay soils of, uh, of the Bockefeld Shell. Yeah. yeah, and it's. Yeah, I, I think you have to be quite clever where you plant as well because it's it's not homogenous. You get some some places where it's just uh, sandstone, sandstone from the mountains around us. There's all eroded down, and um, but there is where you do find the original granite bedrock. That's that's our clay bank. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got these duplex soils where we've got topsoil up to about a meter deep until you hit this clay bank. It was quite nice when the vines really go down looking for, for nutrients and water. And that mm. that's a great buffer for the vines. You mentioned you decided you didn't want to be an accountant or be a businessman, no suit and tie. You joined this sort of burgeoning family business, 1997. You were running this three hectare vineyard. You're working the cellar alongside Barto Eckstein, famous Barto Eckstein. I mean, yeah. you learning on the job, has that had its advantages that you haven't had a formal training in a way? Do you think it makes you a different kind of winemaker? I think I, I think you're right. It's it's definitely different for me. Um, I think it it was the best way for me to learn, hmm. um, kind of on my own terms. You know, I think it allowed me to be a bit of a 
you know, freer thinker with wines as well. And, you know, every now and again, you come across a winemaker where you can see they almost bogged down by the, the academics and the, mm. the dogma and the ideology of the, mm. you know, being an academic. So, you know, I, I bump my head a lot of times with wines, but it's, it kind of makes you think a little bit freer, maybe try something different. And, you know, if you, if you can't do it, you, know, you, you, you find a way. And, and Dave always encouraged that, did he, just to get on with it? Yeah, he is. I mean, he, he never pushed me into it in, at, at all in the beginning. It was totally my own choice. Um, but obviously, I think he, he loved it when I, when I joined, that I was interested and, you know, that I was so enthusiastic. So, you know, straight after university, I, I joined them um, at what we call Cape Bay, the old winery. And they were still busy building, you know, building the building. I was doing carpentry, making stairs, looking, you know, bringing in tanks and just kind of getting used to everything and and planting vineyard as well. We planted our first vineyards in 97. And then we we started buying a little bit of grapes um, from all around, even far, far afield as Wellington. And started wow. making a bit of wine, so that was yeah. that was the beginnings of Newton Johnson was was just this making a bit of wine on the side. You were in Marlborough with Hunters, and you worked in Bordeaux with the Sichels. Were, yeah. were those formative experiences for you as well? I think yes, in the sense that they it exposed me to a lot, a lot of you know. A, a, the wine industry that was very, very different out there, very different from what I knew here in South Africa. Um, you know, with all the winemakers I worked with, I, you know, I might not have agreed with, I was anyway too young, but, you know, agreed with everything that they said. It didn't all make sense to me, but you I kind of took snippets. And after a while, you kind of put them together and eventually built your own philosophy. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned the the, uh, the negotiation business your dad set up, I think, Cape Bay, yeah? But you also got involved with First Cape, which has you know, been a huge brand, isn't it? I mean, you're no longer involved with either. You've sold your shares in both of them now. But I just wonder, what are the keys to making a kind of big blend, a big brand work? I mean, is it all about making the sums add up? I mean, you know, what, what what's it like dealing with wines of that sort of size in terms of the blends? Yeah, it, it is a very different um, type of winemaking. I think it, it taught me a lot about blending. Mm. I think I became, you know, great at blending through that experience as well. And it's it's different wines. It's it's more um, <clears throat> varietal varietal wines. Uh, you know, there's there's no uh, focus on sense of place or anything like that. And it's more than trying to make the best wine, you're trying to make the best wine for millions of people. You know, mm. it has to have that 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 kind of appeal, and to a price, yeah, to a price, yeah, yeah, and um, and yeah, and, and just learning through blending as well that you could mm. take a number of ordinary components and still come out with something quite spectacular. So you know, that whole synergy of of blending was mm. you know, really kind of shown to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the good things about both those businesses is that they were profitable and they allowed you to buy more land and plant more vineyards. Just tell us, how many hectares do you have now and when did you plant the different bits of, 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 of the business? 
Well, we started with our first plantings in 2002, um, and it was graduated as well. We eventually planted the farm, which we call Newton Johnson, where the winery is, on the north-facing uh, north slope. We've got 13 hectares. Hmm. And uh, we've got our other little farm just adjacent uh, called Sanford on the southern slope, which has got six hectares, so 19 in total. And, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have any idea. We kind of did what every other winery in South Africa did. You, you planted a whole fruit salad and, and, you know, kind of saw what was going to, you know, what, what was going to be good or, or not. And it was only over time that we built our reputation, especially with Pinot, hmm. that um, we started to make changes to the vineyard. I'm now really busy making changes to the vineyards. Um, we've got more experience of farming them. We know where the, you know, the good sites are, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of adjusting the borders of our of our single vineyards like Sea Dragon and Windensea mm. as well, because I think there can be more made from them. And then you know, there's there's other parts of the farm as well, which is not well suited for for Pinot and Chardonnay. Uh, mm. Very little clay. Um, we've got a few Rhone varieties right at the bottom of our Newton Johnson farm, which is, I mean, it looks like Chateauneuf de Pup. It's just all the stone and it, we just knew, you know, Burgundy varieties can't grow in that. So, mm. um, yeah, it's, it, it's been good the last 20 years of, of having the experience with the vineyards to be able to have a vision for going forward and what we want to do. make single vineyard wines from the start they've sort of grown out of the out of the plantings that you had and as you've seen those develop yeah um well that's how i've seen pinot on the farm really uh develop is is you know the first 10 years they are more awkward wines or young wines more varietal expression variety expression of pinot and after 10 years we started to see the the vineyards mature the wines change. And it was really about 15 years old that the discussion started to begin with the family of going, you know, there's some of these vineyards that look much better on their own instead mm. of being put into a blend. And mm. I think this is this is the way forward. You know, the, these are our crews that we should be concentrating on. Just tell us a little bit about your approach to farming and whether it's changed over the years. I mean, and whether you're having to adapt to climate change and all of the challenges it brings. I mean, this year you had a very wet, yeah, didn't you? I mean, uh, 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 yeah. vintages. It's not just heat and earlier vintages. It's climate chaos in a sense. How are you adapting your farming? Um, well, right now, I, I say we, we've got a pretty organic approach in our farming. Um, with, I'm always prepared to take calculated risks and, and still getting a, a handle on it. So, you know, no herbicides and no pesticides. I think, the you know, we will use systemic fungicides every now and again. If, the, if there's high disease pressure, like this year that we've just had. And, you know, now seeing, you know, how the, the weather has changed, I mean, it's, it does feel different for me. It, it does feel more erratic, um, you know, spikes of rain or heat. Um, and I, I think we, we started really to make changes after the drought years, 2015 to 2017. And... I, even after the drought years, I could see the vines were just a little bit out of sync. You know, they were, mm. they, I heard someone say they've, they've, they've got a hangover, you know, and they've, they've got to kind of work their way out through it. And um, we've changed the way we've, uh, we're pruning as well. So, you know, 
just about every South African has, has always used cordon pruning in the past. And uh, we're totally going over to Guyo now. Um, we need the, the fertility and the canes as well. Uh, I really like it because it makes less cuts on the vine as well. So it's respecting more the, the vascular flow of the vine. Uh, we've changed our uh, rootstocks using more vigorous rootstocks. Uh, there's a South African one here that is well suited to acidic soils, which is essentially what most Cape soils are, is quite acidic. Um, and row direction as well, mm -hmm. planting where we can, if the slope allows us to do more east-west rows rather than north-south. And yeah. that was that, that was kind of the the old uh, you know knowledge of 20, 30 years ago is that you needed north-south direction rows to have full sun, morning sun and full afternoon sun. Mm. And I'm finding better wines. I've planted our, our Sanford vineyard east-west, but the sun literally goes over the top of the canopy and very rarely gets direct sunlight onto the bunch zone. So I really open it up to yeah. take away leaves. Mm. It gets indirect sun, gets some light in just to, to ripen the tannins. Um, and then also helps for, you know, for those wet years as well, that you've got a, a nice airy canopy. Very interesting. Do, how many different wines do you make now? I mean, you, you've got a quite an unusual portfolio. It's obviously Pinot Chardonnay based, but you've got Rome varieties and you've got da, 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 Alvarino, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we've now got 10 wines in the lineup. Uh, most of them Chardonnay and Pinot, where we've got, you know, it's similar to, to Burgundy in a way. We've got different levels of quality, building all the way up to, to our Sea Dragon and Wind and Sea Cruise. Those are our two. So sort of village, village Premier Crew, Grand Crew in a way, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Our Walker Bay for us, I say, is a great introduction into the Valley. It's a great introduction to our style, but also just the way Pinot uh, reacts within the Valley. It's going to give you a good feel for what the Valley does. Hmm. Um, and uh, same with the Chardonnay as well. And um, we were always looking for an alternative white variety that would find its home here in the valley with us, especially on parcels of soil where there's no clay. It's all pretty free draining. Mm -hmm. uh, and Alberino ticked all those boxes as, you know, maritime, granite soil in Galicia, uh, good rainfall. And it's been a great journey with that grape. Um, we started making that, well, we had to import the vine material and made our first wines in 2013. Hmm. And uh, with the Rhone varieties, I mean, they also started 20 years ago, but they've been whittled out to the, only the best sites. Um, you know, we've subsequently found there's some sites where we planted some Syrah, which, you know, it, it should be Pinot and Chardonnay. So it, it was a spread in the beginning in, in 20 years ago, and now I think we're finding our, our way forward. And t you talked about the, your approach in the vineyard. Tell us a bit about your approach in the cellar. You're, you're pretty hands-off, and I always think of you as a very gentle winemaker, and maybe I've got that wrong, have I? But you see that way to me. You haven't seen me in harvest, a, a dirty, sweaty <laughs> little mongrel uh, stuffing their hands in, in drains and things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think our winemaking has changed quite a bit over the last 15 years or so. I was, you know, I'd say we were pretty conventional 15, 20 years ago. And where we are now, we've, we've kind of 
thrown off the shackles, you could say, of, and I like to say, we're trying to make the most from the grape itself. So uh, no use of sulfur before the fermentations because we want the, the spontane spontaneous fermentations to be free. We want all, all species of, of uh, natural yeast that might be there to, to have a part in the fermentation. And uh, after 2015, after Nadia and I went to Burgundy, we, we just came back and then for whatever reason, we were just so inspired. We just said, we're not doing any, any filtration anymore. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we've kind of thrown off a lot of our previous winemaking of hmm. additions and tannins and enzymes. Those are all gone. Hmm. And, you know, now it's about, you know, making sure that we're doing the job right in the vineyard and, you know, during the winery, I'm most of the time at the end of the sorting table, making sure of whatever goes into the tank is is in great condition for what mm. we want to do. Yeah. It's it's a lot of risk, yeah. but it's worthwhile. I mean, it's quite unusual to have a husband and wife winemaking team. I mean, tell me a couple of things. First, how did you guys meet? Yeah. And, and you know, you've seemed like a very good team. Are your skills complementary in terms of what you do in the cellar and the way you taste, the way you think about wine? Very much so. Um, you know, Nadia and I met in 2004. She was doing a, a stage, an internship at Hamilton Russell, and uh, I was on the prowl. <laughs> <laughs> I managed, managed to bag her. <laughs> and, Smart move. <laughs> and then she actually went for two years. She uh, worked at Crook Constantia with, with Bula Gerber, Yeah, who's now just moved over to the States. And then I convinced her to to come and work with me in the winery. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, we've got very different skill sets. You know, I'm I'm probably the, the more the the dreamer and the one that thinks up ideas and wants to try weird stuff. And she's she's got the analysis. You know, she can she can take a decision and whittle it down into the black and white and make sure that we're doing the right thing. Um, so, so two very different approaches, but I think the, the biggest thing for us is that we've got the same palette and I think mm. that makes all the difference. Mm. And it's great having tasting sessions with her mm. that, you know, we're just on the same wavelengths when it comes to wines and picking something up. So you've got two minds on the wine. One might pick up something a little bit easier than the other. And, you know, it's, it, it works. Yeah, your elder brother, um, Bevan, is involved in the business and also your dad, you know, and your mum. I mean, it's yeah. very much a family business. It seems to me to be a, a harmonious family business. What's the secret of that? <laughs> well, I won't lie and say we didn't have any bust-ups in, in the past, <laughs> especially especially two brothers. Um, you know, Nadia's still working with me in the cellar, but she is now starting to make some of her own wines. And I think mm. it was the right time with the you know, with the kids that are older now as well, that she, she just gets some independence and, and, you know, tries to do what she wants to do. Mm. Um, you know, and with the, the rest of the families, I think we're, we're kind of old hat at the, at the family business now, you know, we've been through all the ups and downs and, you know, I think the, probably the real secret is, is, you know, being family, being so familiar with each other, it's easy to lose your emotions and mm. at work or in a professional atmosphere. So mm. for me, that's that's the key is, is, you know, make sure you hold those negative emotions for the right time. 
Mm. But the good emotions that come from it, you know, are, you know, without uh, comparison, you know, and that you've got to use. Mm. You you won't find that in a normal business. And I think no, that, you, yeah, yeah you, you've got you've got to bottle the secret of it and sell it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, because they've been two of the great success stories, I think, of the new South Africa post-94 in many ways. I mean, why is that? Is it better clonal material? Is it just being able to plant in better places? Is it better winemaking? Is it that you've travelled more? Is it all of those things? I don't know. It's a little bit of everything, in fact. But uh, I I think the the big turnaround was the introduction of new vine material Hmm. with uh, Raymond Bernard's uh, Dijon clones that came in. And you really started to see those as I was starting in the wine industry in 97. Mm. I think maybe Hamilton Russell used a little bit in 95. But at the time, everyone, all the, all the Pinot producers were using the old BK5 clone, the old Swiss mm. bubbly clone. Which is a sparkling wine clone, yeah? A sparkling clone. So not really made for red wines. Yeah. Uh, they made mm. some charming wines. And, you know, you can still find some old ones that are lovely. Mm. It's, they just didn't have the gravitas that the Dijon clones uh, mm. brought. Mm. And, you know, at the time when we were starting, starting to make Pinot for the first time, uh, Hamilton Russell's had started with their, their Pinot Noir workshops. And, you know, if there were 20 producers or, you know, some of them were garage winemakers as well, mm. that was a lot. There weren't many producers around. Um, mm. So, you know, they, there wasn't a large brains trust of Pinot. Mm. And, uh, you know, that has definitely changed in the last 20 years. There's a lot mm. more Pinot around. There's a lot more producers uh, in the valley. Mm. So this whole Brains Trust, I think, has, has grown and really helped to, to helped everyone to specialize, I think, in these two varieties in the valley. Mm. Uh, even Hamilton Russell, when they started, were making, I think Tim wanted to plant Cab and, and they had some Shannon and mm. they slowly, you know, found their, their focus and, I think so is everyone else. Hmm. Yeah. Tell us about one of the other things you do, which is your chair of the Cape Winemakers Guild. Yeah. Um, sounds terribly grand. I know you're very popular. You're, you're a very popular chairman. Just, just tell us what does the Cape Winemakers Guild do exactly? The Cape Winemakers Guild started in the mid-80s, which when you started to get your first um, estate winemakers, you know, your first small premium winemakers before that, uh, the industry was largely concentrated on big cooperative wineries. So this was a little bit of a start, and they they started with the the eye on on tasting with each other, sharing ideas, inspiring each other, and you know that's grown into what it is today, where we are about I think forty one or forty two members uh, of the guild from all over the Cape, all different areas, uh, different specialities. Uh, and, you know, really just trying to push the envelope with South African wine, tasting, tasting the great wines out there and making, you know, seeing if we are, you know, up to the game or not. And another big part of it as well, you know, certainly with South Africa's history is trying to uh, get the younger generation, help that ju- younger generation um, have a bit more easier entry into the wine industry. I mean, we've got kids from so many different backgrounds that, mm. that are now getting into winemaking. They don't have all the resources. They don't have all the connections. Mm. So they um, 
they are part of what we call the protege program where they spend three years within the guilds members work with the members uh come to the tastings taste the wines and they get all kinds of training you know even you know training for being a good speaker mm. and just giving them all the skills to really go out there and, and compete on the world stage. Yeah, it's been a great thing, particularly for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. I mean, often people of colour, not exclusively, but I think it's it's really brought on the next generation of winemakers who are really exciting already. I think a lot of them are achieving great things. Yeah, and it's going to help the wine culture really spread to all the populations within South Africa as well. Yeah. And, you know, start building a... a Cosa vocabulary in wine or Zulu vocabulary in yeah. wine and just starting to build the culture of mm. drinking wine with your food and it's something that's 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 been lacking. Yeah. The one thing I want to ask you about is about the kind of fine wine sector. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, people who don't know South Africa say, oh, it hasn't really got a fine wine sector. Is, is that changing that perception, particularly in places like the States where people don't think of South Africa as a fine wine producer? But you've done a lot to help change that, I think, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's still growing. I mean, on the whole, South Africans' vineyards are shrinking with every year. They are getting smaller. Um, it's still very much based, it was based very much on the history of bulk winemaking, mm. making bulk wines. And I think a lot of farmers are st starting to find more profitable crops, don't mm. want to be in it anymore. It's hard, mm. too hard to 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 market or to to sell your wines and i think that's that's left the door open for the premium sector really to to grow i mean just looking at the at the swatland as well of how they've taken a cooperative area and really changed it into a, a burgeoning premium area so yeah. i think that that trend's going to continue you know mm -hmm. as, as long as i think we we put the effort in into our research into our uh, academics, you know, I think that'll that'll continue. You'll see a, a bigger and bigger wine, a premium sector. Yeah, but I think you know, there's got to be a market for 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 bigger wines in terms of bulk producers and producers and brands. But surely the profitability is in the middle tier and the upper tier, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, with costs, well, I think that's that's the biggest pressure being put on farmers now is just the uh, inflation and the rise of costs. I think we in South Africa are quite used to inflation. We've usually got a, a level of about 7%. Join uh, the club. <laughs> UK is now experiencing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that the cost of farming has really put a pressure, put pressure on those farmers. And it's it's really only the premium sector that can that can match that. Yeah, and I think you're right. A good profitable business, yeah. yeah. Listen, final question. How do you get away from wine? You've got a busy life. You've got a family. You know, you're running the Cape Winemakers Guild. Are you still a surfer? Is the Durban boy still within you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, still a surfer. Um, no, happily, I mean, I'm 15 minutes away from the beach. So, you know, if I do find a gap, we we'll go down and, and go have a surf. It clears the head. Um, and, you know, there's there's a great bunch of winemakers that surf as well. So, you know, we, we get together and we go on surf trips and, you know, guys like Duncan and Irvin and my brother and Miles. And, you know, it's it's a it's a great camaraderie that we've built, I think, within the wine industry. Even having, you know, something that we call the, the Vintners Classic, a little bit of a fun day, a surfing competition, which is now 20 years old. Uh, it all started because none of us could play golf for, for any of the 
the sponsor open days. So we started a, a surfing uh, competition and it's, uh, it's, it's going fantastically well. And when's the next one? Next one is in first or second week of August. Damn, I'll be back by then. Otherwise, I'd come and watch, I think. Oh, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a bit messy, but it's good fun. Well, that sounds great. Listen, Gordy, it's fantastic talking to you. Love your wines. Um, see you very soon. In fact, I'll see you next week. Super. Great stuff. Thanks, Tim. See ya. All right. Ciao. Lovely guy, Gordy, with an artist touch in the cellar. And I love what he's doing as chairman of the Cape Winemakers Guild. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Gavin Quinney from Chateau Beauduc in Bordeaux. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week. <laughs>